You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Pray with me. Father, we do desire to hear from your word this morning that you've revealed to us in the scriptures, that you would reveal it here and teach us by your Holy Spirit that we might understand, that we might receive, and that by faith we might believe your words of eternal life. Would you encourage your church this morning as we spend time in the Scriptures that we'd be challenged where our hearts might be a little hard, that we might be deepened where our faith is a little shallow, that we might be encouraged where we feel a little weary, that your people might be equipped and built up and established for your glory and for your name to be made known. We pray all this in the matchless and wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, River City. It's uh, fun to all be together in one spot. I don't know about you, but when I woke up this morning, about 15 times this morning, I'm like, what time is it? What am I doing next? Like, I couldn't figure out if I was early or late. Turns out I was both early and late um, to, like, everything I wanted to do this morning. So... We're glad that you're here. If you showed up at uh, 8.55 for 9 a.m. church, glad you stuck around. Um, in about 25 minutes, there will probably be a few people who will walk in the back door, and we're just going to welcome them with open arms and invite them to sing with us, because that's probably what we'll be doing at that point. But we've come to worship today with hearts that this week have been probably pulled in many directions, right? There's been rejoicing as... Uh, babies are born, as graduations happen, as people get engaged to be married, and there's weeping as there's evil being used by human against human, person against person. And what anchors us in both the joys and the sorrows is this, a sure hope, a confidence in our God that He does not change. Who is, who is constant in both his mercy and his justice. And so even as we come to worship this morning, we cast our cares upon him. We offer to him our prayers in our sorrow, and we offer to him our praise in our joys, believing that he is always good and always does good. Amen? Amen. I hope that anchors our hearts this morning. Let's go to God's Word. Luke 15 is where we are. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hands and some folks from our strike team will be coming around. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the whole rest of this chapter and this marks the end of our study in Luke for, well, I suppose the year. Um, This is our, I think, third installment in Luke's Gospel. Uh, Should the Lord wait to return um, by next... uh, Next spring, we'll jump back into Luke's gospel again. Um, starting next week, uh, we'll work through uh, what we've been the last couple of summers, uh, taking a psalm each week. And so next week starts our, set, our study in the psalms over the summer. So just a little bit of the plan going forward. Uh, but today we're in Luke 15. 
And as Pastor Devin mentioned last week, that this parable that we'll read today is the third in a series of three parables from Jesus. And it's connected to the two that we already read and looked at last week. A little bit of context, Jesus is talking about two groups of people. There are tax collectors and sinners whom, who seem to just flock to Jesus. And they, these, these tax collectors, they have a, a reputation for being shady, a little underhanded. In fact, uh, by other Jewish uh, folks with Jewish heritage, they saw other Jewish men who worked as tax collectors as traitors because they worked for the Roman government. And then Luke says other sinners. And the language here isn't that the other people are not sinners, but that tax collectors and sinners, that, that language just tells us that they were known to be sinners. Like everyone knew it. They were well known to be prostitutes and thieves and untrustworthy drunkards. So that's the, that's the first group of people that Luke tells us about. And the second group despises the first group and despises Jesus for sitting down for a meal with those people. The second group, as Devin outlined last Sunday, are the Pharisees and the scribes. And Luke tells us that they are grumbling. They're complaining under their breath, but outwardly that other people can tell that they're complaining. Not so subtle complaining. Specifically about Jesus. Because he not only welcomes them into his presence, he sits with them. He eats meals with them. He teaches them. And so Jesus tells these three parables. Parable about a lost sheep, parable about, about a lost coin, and the one we'll look at today, a parable about a lost son. And it seems to me that Jesus is coming back over and over again in this chapter, kind of putting it in front of the face of the people who are listening, asking them, do you get it yet? Do, do you know who I am and why I'm here? Because clearly you don't seem to be understanding what I've come to do. Which begs the question for us, and this is the question I'd like us to ask as we come to the text this morning. Do I understand or have I lost sight of the gospel of grace? Do we understand it? Or if we maybe have once understood it, have we lost sight of it? And Jesus illustrates in this parable, I think, that we show that we understand the gospel of grace in our love for our Father and in our willingness to celebrate with Him the beauty of repentance and faith. Let me say that again. We show that we understand the gospel of grace in two ways. In our love for the Father and in our willingness to celebrate with our Father the beauty of of repentance and faith. So let's read our text today. We're going to start in verse 11 and read through verse 32, which is the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's just God's word for us this morning. Now this parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son, but it should almost be called the parable of the two sons. So that's how I want to look at the text today, kind of two lenses. First part, the, how each, and, how, and how each person in this story understands the love of their father. One, the younger son, we'll look at that part of the parable first, and then two, the older son. First, the younger son or the younger brother, depending on whose shoes you're standing in at the moment. This is the familiar part of the parable. This is the part of the story many of us understand or know. Whether we grew up going to church, we read our Bibles or not, we all have probably experienced at least part of this story. Or we have heard it. Verse 11, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So in this parable, the father has some wealth. And his sons are expecting an inheritance. Now, commentators note that the older son, the firstborn, would traditionally receive about two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger about a third. But the key is that the inheritance would only be theirs once the father has died, which is kind of how inheritances work. So until then, it still belongs to the father, and broadly, it belongs to the household. For the management of the household. Maybe they have a, a business that they're running or a farm or something. It, it belongs to the father. So his request, the younger son's request to the father, is essentially saying, I'd rather you were dead so that I could have what's mine, what's coming to me. 
I don't love you for you. I love you for what you can give to me. Essentially severing that relationship between father and son. And as heartbroken as the father probably is, we're not told, but he obliges and divides out his property to give the younger son his portion. One other note, without getting too deep into the weeds, this probably isn't like, he probably doesn't have like vats of cash laying around. So he has to liquidate some of his assets. He has to go sell some livestock or some, something in order to come up with the younger son's portion of the inheritance. And he does that after a few days. Jesus tells us that the younger son then takes what's his and leaves. And as the parable goes, the younger son takes the money and travels to a faraway land, far from his father's house. And Jesus says that he squanders all the money that his father gave him. To squander something is to spend foolishly or to waste it. He wastes it on what Jesus calls reckless living. And it doesn't take too long. The younger son finds himself far from home without money because he spent it all. And so he decides, now I need to get a job. And he hires himself out to a man who lives in that country to feed his pigs. Now, as an aside, this is one of the indicators that those who were listening to Jesus would understand that the younger son is pretty far from home because there aren't Jews at the time who were raising pigs as livestock. Pigs are unclean. And so it's very likely that this younger son has gone very far from home, far enough away that he could be seen in, in that kind of context. Pigs were unclean animals. And so this young man is now far from his homeland, far from his culture, and far from the faith of his father. Perhaps this person who hired him paid him very little or maybe mistreated him. Apparently he was hungry. We don't know. But Jesus tells us he was so hungry, he was considering eating what they were feeding the pigs, which is likely a reference to a carob pod, which is used as a filter uh, in their diet to fatten up pigs. Um, I was going to post a photo of it, and I forgot, but uh, I had a tree that produced something similar uh, in our neighborhood growing up. The big, kind of long, brown, banana-shaped, thin, ugly pods. Something along those lines are what the pigs would eat. And he's thinking, I'm so hungry... Maybe this doesn't look so bad. Not particularly appetizing. Look at verse 17. Here he is living amongst the pigs. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, remember, this young man is far from home, has spent all his money, he's working on a pig farm, and he's really only looking at pig food as an option. I mean, if this is all you had to look forward to at lunch this afternoon, you also might rethink your life. Right? But when he came to himself, he comes to his senses to quote, grew from despicable me, light bulb. (laughs) Right? It's a moment where he goes, I don't have to live like this. He thinks to himself, no, what am I doing? What, What am I doing here? How did I get here? As an aside, maybe you've felt that at some point in your life where you find yourself in a hole or in a place you don't want to be and you go, How did I get here? Maybe we can relate. Because the younger son knows that even the servants who work for his father eat better and are treated better than how he is living right now. And so here's what he decides to do. He is going to do three things. He's going to get up and go back to his father. 
He's going to confess his sin to his dad and confess his sin before God. Verse 18, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against God and before you, he says. And three, he's going to plead with his father to be his servant. He's not presuming to be reinstated as a son. He just wants to work on the farm. That's it. That's all he, he feels he's worthy of. And we see what happens. Verse 20, younger son makes his way back home. And it must have been quite a journey. And remember, he had no money. So he probably looked ragged. He probably walked. But it was worth it. It was worth the effort. It was worth the embarrassment. He must have had lots of time on his hands in his traveling, probably rehearsing the speech he's going to give over and over in his head as he walks. And look at what verse 20 tells us. But while he was still a long way off, the father, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. The father is so overjoyed to see his boy that he runs to him and embraces him, like wraps him up and kisses him. Any parent in the room can feel a little bit of this verse, right? Kids in the room, you know what that feeling when mom or dad grabs you and you just feel in that moment that you are safe and that you are loved? That's the picture here. His father runs to him and embraces him while he's still coming down the road. And the younger son then interrupts almost and gives his presentation, the speech he's been practicing the whole time. Dad, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I know what I've done. I know how awful it is. I've rejected you and I'm not asking to be your son again. And it's almost as if the father isn't even listening to him. He tells his other servants, without responding to the son at all, go get him a robe and a ring and some shoes. He is clothing his son, not only to cover his probably ragged-looking self, but as a sign of honor. In that moment, he restores his son's dignity by placing on him a robe and shoes for his feet. He is restoring his position as a son of the father by placing a ring on his finger. He's being reinstated in that moment as a son of his father, as a member of the household. And in verse 23, the father tells the servants to go prepare the fattened calf because they are going to party. They're going to celebrate. Verse 24, why? For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Pastor Devin said this last week, that when the sheep is found, the shepherd gathers his friend and says, let's celebrate. And when the coin is found, the woman gathers her neighbors and says, let's celebrate. And when the son who is lost is found, the father gathers all their friends and says, let's celebrate. So the sheep and the coin and the son represent all those who are lost. And Jesus finds them. And heaven rejoices. God rejoices when the lost are found. When sinners repent, when those who are dead are restored to new and eternal life, the proper response at the return of someone who is lost is celebration. That's what 
these parables are pointing to. This is one reason we rejoice and cheer when we hear someone share their story of God's grace. God showing them mercy and then they go down into the waters of baptism, which is typically how we practice it here. Why? We want to join our voices with the celebration that is going on in heaven. Rejoice with those who were once dead and in our life. Those who were once lost but who have been found by Jesus. And he could have said, as he did with the other parables, which of you, when you lose a sheep, which of you, when you lose a coin, and tries to help them understand their place in the story. But Jesus doesn't do that for this particular parable. He introduces another person, which leads us to our second point, this older brother. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. The party had already begun, and he hears it. And he calls out to one of the servants and asks what these things meant. What is going on? There is a noise ordinance violation happening. What is happening? And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. This is the condition heart, the heart, the heart condition, excuse me, of the older brother, the, the older son. But he was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. Now, Jesus, in the first two parables, in the earlier part of Luke 15, Jesus doesn't tell us if there's a friend of the shepherd or a, a friend of the woman who gets mad at them for throwing a party for their sheep or coin. We don't, we don't know that. But Jesus does tell us that there is another son who is angry. And in his anger, he refuses to go into the house and join the party. Let's continue. Verse 28. His father came out and entreated him. You can picture it, right? The father hosting this kind of impromptu party now is looking around and says, well, where's my other son? He's not here. He must still be in the field goes outside to find him angry outside the house. He comes out to him and entreats him. That word entreats meaning he's pleading with him. Would you come? Come inside. Come join the party. Come, come say hi to your brother. He's home. And listen to the response of the older son in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It's not fair. The older son just says, this isn't fair. I've been faithful to you for years, and you never threw me a party. This guy goes off the rails and he comes home with his tail between his legs feeling really bad and I got an idea. Let's throw the biggest party for that guy. I do think it's funny that his complaint is that he never got a goat. But you see the comparison, right? You didn't even give me something small to party with and you're, you're, you're using the fattened calf? I mean, that's a big deal. You'd save the fattened calf for a wedding feast or or, or just the celebration of celebrations. And you're spending it on that son of yours. 
as the older brother says. He stole from you and walked away. Now you might be able to relate a little. There's a little frustration here that you can go, okay, I think you might be a little out of line, but I can at least, you know, sympathize. How many of you have younger siblings? Right? And how many, for how many of you that have younger siblings, the perception is that they get away with more than you ever got away with? It's okay. Put your hands back up, older siblings. It's okay. Even if your younger siblings are in the room. I just tell my younger siblings that. Right? You, older siblings, or firstborn in particular, you had an early bedtime. But your younger siblings, bedtime, what's that? You had a curfew especially on a school night. And they're like, Mom, I'm coming home tomorrow. And Mom's like, okay, click. Right? What curfew? Now, I'm exaggerating a little, but, but I want to make the point, right? These things are not the same as the situation in the story, but you get the idea. This older brother was angry because it seemed the younger brother, the younger son, was getting a pass for his terrible behavior that he was reaping some kind of benefit that the older son never got. And he's just saying, this, is, this doesn't seem fair to me, Father. Now up to this point, Jesus is making this point that the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, these are re- relating to the, the tax collectors and the, the sinners, the one whom Jesus has welcomed into his circle. The ones he heals, he teaches them, they draw near to Jesus and he welcomes them up close and personal. That's pretty obvious. And as Jesus expands this parable to the older son, he's essentially looking over the heads of all the tax collectors and sinners at the uh, scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling at the way Jesus receives them. And he says, I'm talking about you. In one sense, you could say that Jesus is turning his attention to the church people, the religious people. To pastors and elders, as Devin said last week, there's a legitimate caution that we need to have when we come to a text like this. But the core of the issue isn't necessarily a specific religious devotion. It's self-righteousness. I'd say it's religion with a small r. Self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And God despises self-righteousness, as Pastor Devin taught so well last week. These Pharisees and scribes looked at the masses of the lost and rather than compassion, they felt scorn. They were better than those people. And as an aside, it's not only religious versus irreligious. It's not a left-right issue. The question is, there is a massive misunderstanding of the character of God and the grace of God that spurs on Self-righteousness. Charles Spurgeon cautions it this way. He says, those who are best acquainted with mankind, so you just understand the human condition, will tell you that self-righteousness is not the peculiar sin of the virtuous, but that most remarkably, it flourishes best when there appears to be the least soil for it. Here's what he's saying. The shallow soil of the heart of a person where a fruitful plant could almost never put down roots, that shallow soil happens to be the very best place for the weeds of self-righteousness to grow. Not of the particularly virtuous, 
but who I would argue the small r religious. Doesn't mean spiritual, doesn't even mean Christian. But it's a shallow soil. Self-righteousness says, I'm pretty good, not sure what's wrong with the rest of you people. And the religious and the irreligious among us are susceptible to fall into that exact same trap. And this was the posture of the Pharisees and the scribes. And this is the posture of the older son, the older brother in this parable. And this is the part of the parable that seems to be speaking most clearly and kind of yelling at me as I'm reading it this week. See, Jesus has many harsh words for self-righteous and religious people. Earlier in Luke's gospel, he calls them snakes. He calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He calls them sons of the devil. You're not a son of Abraham. You're a son of the devil. You're like, oh, those are them's fighting words from Jesus, right? He called, he's very harsh with the religious. But I found something remarkable in studying this passage this week. It's a hard word he gives, but in this parable, it's almost gentle as it's hard. Look at what Jesus says, verse 31. And this is beautiful, by the way. He, the father, says to his son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Don't you see? You're already with me. You already have everything because you have me. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You've lost sight of the fact that he's your brother and not just my son. You see, the father knows that both sons have the same problem. Neither the younger son nor the older son loved the father for who he was. Only what he could do for them. The younger son is obvious, right? He severed that relationship with his father and with his family by taking his inheritance and running. But the older son severed that relationship as well. When his brother comes home, he doesn't say, when my brother came home. He says, when that son of yours came home. He has lost sight of the relationship between a father and his children. And the older son is unable to understand grace. He cannot see it. And just as the father ran to meet the younger son, which is a beautiful picture of the mercy of God, he goes out to meet the older son. And that word son that he uses with his older son, he's, verse 31, he tells him, son, you are always with me. That verse, that word son is a very tender word word. It's my child, my boy. He goes out to find the older son as well and he says, my boy, don't you know you are, you're always with me? He's not calling him a baby for pouting outside. He's calling him, my, you're, you're my son, my boy. You've always been with me. You've always had access, not just to my table, not just to the livestock in the barns, not only to my riches. You've always had access to me. But the older son has separated himself not only from his brother but also from his father. And there's the check in my heart this week reading this text. Do I love the father? 
Or do I only love Him for what He can give me or do for me? Right? To say it this way, I think we can assess our love for God our Father. So how do I know, right? I think we can assess a little bit at least our our love for God as our Father and our understanding of God's grace in the way that we react to God's mercy in someone else's life. Let me say that again. I think, maybe it's just a barometer for me. I'm not going to impose this on you. You can just borrow it if you'd like. I think I can assess the condition of my heart and my love for God as my Father in the way that I respond when God shows mercy to someone else, particularly to someone that I might find a little undeserving. You see, I, I want to add a little something to my own position. I, I mean, I know we are saved by grace. It is not of works so that no one may boast. But the old part of me wants to boast a little, right? I want to be seen as being noble. I want to be seen as being in the right. And so often, maybe not always, but often, the bottom of that is just self-righteousness. And Jesus is cautioning that one of the major things that will keep us out of the celebration in the end is our self-righteousness. It's a cancer. Now, if the younger son didn't have that light bulb moment in that pig field, if his heart wasn't stirred towards humility, where he was willing to humbly come back, which is similar language to the idea of repentance right there in the text of, I'm turning, I'm going back. If he didn't go back to his father and seek forgiveness and restoration, then there wouldn't be a party either. We don't neglect that. There's a party because God had so moved on the heart of the younger son to to break him, to humble him that he might turn and return to his father. But the way to the feast is humility. The way to the party is repentance. And that repentance is met with the lavish expense of the mercy of the Father. Every time. So the focus of these parables is twofold. Yes, absolutely, to encourage the younger brothers, the lost. There is a reminder that there is no road too far, no canyon too wide that makes it impossible to be reconciled to God. I don't know if you need to hear that this morning, but you have not gone so far away that you cannot see him any longer. There is no chasm too deep. The Father delights to welcome to himself the most wayward and most wandering. So if that's you this morning, then then I want you to hear that this parable is pleading with you that God the Father has sent Jesus down the road to meet you with open arms and embrace you. But this parable is also given to remind, gently maybe, that yes, you older brothers, God came to rescue you self-righteous hypocrites too just like me. There is grace for the self-righteous hypocrite too. It's easy to demonize the self-righteous hypocrite, like how dare that guy, and realizing that the grace that saves is needed. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is why it's good that the absolute worst of us can be covered by the blood of Jesus, that we can actually be forgiven And that spirit-wrought repentance is worth celebrating. I saw a quote in meme form 
unattributed to anyone that I could find, that as a recovering hypocrite myself, it has helped keep my older brother tendencies in check. It says this, the apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. The Apostle Paul entered glory to the cheers of those he had murdered. And that's how the gospel works. The question Jesus is asking in this parable, in these parables, is this. Do we understand or have we lost sight of the gospel of grace? And Jesus illustrates, I think, beautifully in this parable what actually makes the gospel good news. That Jesus came to to seek and to save lost people. That the gospel of grace, which celebrates and welcomes in the lost and broken, that when grace does its work in the heart of a person, when faith and repentance begins to take root and bear fruit in our lives, and when that happens, it is worthy of celebration. So let's celebrate the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus together, even this morning. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we confess and we acknowledge that we were dead. Dead and lost and buried. And in your mercy, you have sought us out and welcomed us and breathed life into our dead hearts that we might actually be alive. And all of this was hinged on Jesus and what you've done to purchase for us, purchase us back from the dead, to buy us back and present us to the Father. And that now we are daughters and sons. Oh, what grace you've shown us. And oh, what mercy you've lavished upon us. That we might be called children of God, and so we are. As we come to the table, would the reminder of the bread and the cup do its work in us to to kill the the temptation of other joys that we think that if we pursue them, they will provide us with happiness and satisfaction. And would the bread and the cup also kill in us that sense of self-righteousness and thinking that we bring something to the table other than the sin that made it necessary for you to die. And that you might fill all of our hearts older brothers and younger brothers alike, with joy as we celebrate your grace to us in the cross. Receive our worship this morning. Encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen.